George sought his daughter, Victoria, died 30 years ago. And every day, every year, rather, sorry, he visits a grave twice. Uh, he goes there at the Southern Cemetery in Manchester. Uh, recently, I think it was last, last month, actually, he went to the grave, and to his shock, the headstone for Victoria had moved into a completely different place from where he used to go, and it was somewhere over there. After a few inquiries, he was quite shocked. First of all, he didn't know where he was. He had just disappeared. And then he discovered he had been moved. And so after a few inquiries, uh, he found out what was going on. Well, it turns out that a mistake was made uh, 30 years ago, actually. As much as that. Uh, In fact, Victoria was never buried at the spot George has been visiting twice a year for the last 30 years. He was quite shocked about this. She had actually buried somewhere else. And George was so upset by this, and the newspapers interviewed him, and this is what he said. He said, I feel so let down. When you go to a grave, you sit, talk, and say what your troubles are, but the annoying thing is, you are talking to a piece of ground where she isn't there. Now, we may have a a bit of theological issues with George, but George is distressed, isn't it? He's distressed because, you know, he's, he's believed one thing for 30 years. And then he's realized that it's all been wrong. He was all misled. Uh, the experience of George, as I thought about it, uh, reminded me that truth matters in life. It, is, it matters to us to know what is true and what isn't. And sometimes when we find out we believe something and find out we have been sort of practicing wrong, it can shock us to our core. None of us want to be deceived about what matters to us in life. And yet, even though as important as that gravestone is uh, to judge, uh, as important as many things we believe to be true are, maybe, uh, there's something that even matters more than other things we believe to be true. And that is, it matters to know that we worship God in spirit and in truth. We can't get that wrong. We need to be confident as we sit here this evening that we are worshipping God in spirit and in truth. We can't afford to be deceived about that because God created us to worship Him. And this is our ultimate purpose in life. We are created to worship God. This morning we began to look at Mark chapter 2, verse 18 to verse 22, right? Uh, We saw in verse 18 there uh, that people are approaching Jesus with a question. They are asking him, they want to know, um, as we said this morning, they want to know, you know, why is it that Jesus um, and his disciples are not fasting, but yet the Pharisees are all about fasting and John's disciples are all about fasting. We, we looked at that question and we said that though the question in verse 18 of chapter 2 is, is around fasting, uh, what we learned is that what the people are really asking is, what is true worship of God? Is it Judaism of the Pharisees? Is it, is it the austere religion of John the Baptist? Or is it the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, what might I say? They're patting. <laughs> they're, they're enjoying the religion of Christ, so to speak. They want to know what true worship is. Uh, and Jesus answers this question in verse 18 with three parables. In the morning, we looked at verse 19 to 20. We looked at the parable of the bridegroom's guests. That's what I call it. And I said that parable, what it teaches us about true worship is that 
True worship is enjoying being with Jesus. That's what we learned this morning. True worship is enjoying being with Jesus. Well, this evening we are looking at verse 21 to verse 22. And here we don't have one point. I'm sorry to disappoint you. We've got three points again. You know, back to tradition as it were. And the three truths that Jesus wanted to teach us about true worship are these. The first truth is there in your outline. The first truth we learn here is that worship of God without Jesus is useless. So we want to know what true worship is. Well, the first thing we need to know is that worship of God without Jesus is useless. Let's look at verse 21 there. Jesus gives us this second, this second parable, uh, this word picture. What we have in verse 21 is a picture of someone patching a hole in an old jacket they have so to speak, uh, and they are patching that hole with or a cloth with a, with a new and shrunk cloth, and it ends up making things worse. Let's read verse 21. Jesus says this in verse 21, no one sews um, a piece of unshrunk cloth, that is a new cloth, on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear is made. Now, when you read that, it probably puzzles some of us here. Hopefully not, but it may puzzle some of us here because we are living in a time where we use, what, synthetic fibers. And when our clothes get old, we just throw them away, isn't it? Or we give them away. But other folks among us, I hope, and me certainly growing up in a village in Zambia as a young boy, I remember having my clothes torn sometimes, and my mother would patch them up. And some of you older folks here may remember a time such as that. Most of you probably have never had that. Some of, well, some of you may not have had that in your experience. But some of us have had. And, and, but in Jesus' time, this was very common. Uh, this is a problem the person in verse 21 is facing. She, he or she has a hole in her coat or in her garment. Uh, uh, and as I said, in Jesus' day, clothes were not made of synthetic fibers. Uh, they were made of natural fibers. And natural fibers, of course, are clothes made like that, they shrink when they are washed. Uh, it all depends on the quality of your clothes these days. But in Jesus' day, when something new was washed, a new piece of cloth, it would shrink. Uh, and so, if there's a hole in an old garment and you put a new cloth there, uh, immediately you wash it and hang it dry, uh, you may find that over time, as you wash it a bit, of, a bit more, uh, it may make a larger hole, uh, worse than before. And that's what Jesus is saying here, isn't it, in verse 21. If he does that, he says, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, because the new shrinks, and therefore the hole in the hole becomes worse. So the point that Jesus is making here is that this, this, this old garment really is Judaism. And the point he's making is that this old piece of cloth is beyond repair. <laughs> you can't help it. You, you, you can try and patch it up, but it's not going to work. You can bring new stuff on it, but it's not going to work. That's the point he's making. He's saying the religion of Judaism is this old piece of cloth. It has become useless. And it has become useless not because it is old, but it is useless because it is built on the old covenant. Now the old covenant, the Old Testament, is a wonderful thing. But the religion of the Old Testament, as we've been learning in Judges, was always meant to point to Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, look, I have arrived. I'm the point these old rules and regulations were pointing to. 
The old has become obsolete now. The problem is that the, the Pharisees, Tim Pharisee, as we met them this, this morning, they don't want anything to do with Jesus. Okay? They want to hold on to their religion, their, their laws and human traditions of the Old Testament, and they've added more things to it based on their founders. They want religion without Jesus. But Jesus is saying, look, worshiping God like that is completely useless. Religion, any religion that worships God without Jesus is completely fruitless, useless, obsolete. This is true for Judaism today. It is true for Islam. It is true for Hinduism. It is true for Buddhism. It is true for New Age, Scientology. The list just goes on, isn't it? I think there is an infinite search, probably, of religions. Right? All of them completely useless. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not politically correct, of course, to say that. But it is the truth, because Jesus himself is saying that. These are old garments. And they have a large hole in the, in the middle, so to speak. The hole is Jesus. They don't have Jesus in them. And therefore, they are completely useless. And of course, this is not just true for religions we see around us. It is also true for the main religion in this country. What is the main religion in this country? No, it's self-worship. Close one. It's uh, not quite. Not yet. It's self-worship. The number one religion in this country is self-worship. Uh, people who say they do not worship any god actually simply are saying, I worship myself. The English poet William Blake said this, Man must and will always have some religion. If he does not have the religion of Jesus, he will have the religion of Satan. If he does not have the religion of Jesus, he will have the religion of Satan. That's what William Blake said. And the Bible tells us that those who stand with Satan in the end will suffer everlasting destruction. Those who worship God without Jesus are standing with Satan and in the end they are really just doing themselves self-harm. Now, as we sit here this evening, of course, we would claim we worship Jesus. And that's quite important. But we need to let this truth sink in because there's a danger here to think, well, I guess this doesn't apply to me. So, But we need to let this truth sink in because, you see, friends, we don't naturally like actually to think about these things. It makes us feel uncomfortable. I know actually some of you in this fellowship are deeply troubled when I mention about everlasting destruction. It makes you uncomfortable, and frankly, of course, it makes me uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable because it makes us uncomfortable because we don't want our family and friends who we love to be doomed forever. When we hear that, it worries us, doesn't it? We have children who do not know the Lord. We have colleagues at work. We, we have friends. We have brothers. We have sisters who do not know Christ. They have a religion without Jesus. And so when we hear this, it makes us feel uncomfortable. We just feel like shutting our ears. But beloved, I want to remind you that this is the Lord Jesus Christ himself speaking. Saying a religion without him is useless. And so we need to take that seriously. 
And we need to take it seriously because it's Jesus speaking, but we also need to take it seriously because shutting our ears to this truth is not actually practicing love to people we care about. We cannot say we love them without facing the pain that they are in a grave danger. We cannot love people in our lives unless we see that they are added to a Christless eternity. There's nothing loving about knowing there is a danger out there and you emotionally removing yourself from it, not wanting to read scriptures about that, not wanting to hear sin preached, not wanting to hear anything about hell. You think you're being loving, but you are not. And, and it's obvious because, you see, unless we let this truth sink in, how can we pray with agency for people in our lives to be saved? We won't. If the reality of eternal destruction is not there, is not forefront of our minds, we won't pray with any agency. We are prayerless, many of us, because the realities of this truth don't hit in our hearts. If we really believed hell was real, if we really recognized this truth Jesus is saying, that worship of God without Jesus is useless, we'll be asking others to pray with us. We'll prioritize meeting together for prayers on Saturday. We'll study the word. We'll take every opportunity to minister to the lost around us. You see, friends, unless we take this truth seriously, we also won't make every effort to live in a way that attracts people around us to Jesus. Because if we know that there are eternal matters at stake, we will come before God and say, Lord, help me to live in such a way that my brother would see Christ in me. So that perhaps through that... He may be prompted to ask me questions about Christ, or he may be prompted to ask others about Jesus. We can't serve anyone, but what we can do is cry out to God to help us, to live in a way that points others to him. Because this truth is vital, isn't it? That worship of God without Jesus, any worship, and everybody's a worshiper, any worship of God without Jesus is useless. And in the end, it's like that old cloth. In the end, it's ready to be burned. And nothing more. The second truth Jesus tells us about worship here is that worship of God by adding Jesus on top is foolish. Worship of God by simply adding Jesus on top is foolish. Let's look at the... the, the. So the first parable is about an old cloth. Well, the third parable in verse 22 is about an old wine skin that is not able to contain new and fermented wine. Let's read verse 22. Jesus says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, as we sit here this evening in Bexley Heath, uh, we are used to, 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 to glass b- bottles, right? Wine in nice, gla- nice little bottled, in, bottled with glass, so to speak. Well, during the time of Jesus, wine is, of course, stored in bottles, but there are bottles made of animal skins, so to speak. When wine ferments, what happens is that it expands, doesn't it, as it lets off the gases. So in these days, in the time of Jesus, uh, they have decided that it's important to put it in something that expands, right? And that is where the animal skins come in, okay? A fresh animal skin, perhaps a goat skin, 
uh, is elastic. Uh, it is durable enough to all the one. Uh, I've taken part in the slaughter of the goat, so I'm speaking from a first-hand experience. I have seen an animal skin of a goat there, you know. When it's very fresh, it's one that we were just doing a barbecue, brother. So, so, so when, when, it's, when, it's, when it, I was going around killing goats, uh, <laughs> the, 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 the skin of the goat is elastic. Uh, perhaps, and it's durable also. It's, it's able to, or you could use another animal, but it's durable enough to hold the wine. But the problem is that, of course, over time, even the animal skin can become dry, and the more it is used, the more you pour wine in it, it can stop expanding, isn't it? And that's what the Lord Jesus is saying here. He's saying that it is foolish to put in an old wine skin new expanding wine. Why? Because that, it would just burst. It, 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 when, it, when it ferments, it would just burst and everything will be ruined. Let's read that, verse 22. And no one puts what? New wineskin into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, look, he, 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 Jesus, he is this new super-duper wine from God. Right? And he's saying, look, I can't simply be added onto your own ideas of how to worship God. I am the new wine, and I'm not going to go into an old wineskin. The thing you've got already, and you want me on top, it doesn't work. And you know what? Many people worship God with Jesus simply added on top. They have their own ideas about what it means to be a Christian. And they've just added Jesus on top. Jesus is saying, look, that is foolish. But notice something quite important here. He's not just saying it's foolish. He's saying doing that makes things worse. If you don't remember anything from this parable, remember that point. Doing that, combining Jesus with your own version of religion, makes things worse. In what way does it make things worse? Well, simply this. Adding Jesus on top of your man-made religion makes things worse by blinding people to the true way of salvation in Jesus. Think, for example, about Roman Catholicism. Okay? The main religion of the Catholic Church is the worship of Mary, right? The Pope was in Ireland recently, and we heard more about Mary than about Jesus, in fact. There was a lot of visiting Mary's shrine here and there. And even the prayer he gave was to Mary. Okay? That, that's the religion of Roman Catholicism. But of course, Jesus has been added on top. And so Catholics will tell you they believe in the substitutionary death of Jesus for our sins. They believe that. And yet, they will say, you only be saved by being baptized. It's not enough just to repent if you're Catholic. You must also be baptized. And by the way, they will add on, they will say, look, and you keep on being saved by doing works of love. Receiving penancy and the Eucharist. Those are the three things needed in Catholicism for you to be kept served. Now, there are many good Catholics, wonderful people. But that is religion plus Jesus. They have added Jesus on top of their existing non-biblical ideas. 
If you like, these wonderful Catholics, so to speak, have been blinded by a false worship that pours Jesus into their odd container of salvation by works. This is also the case, by the way, with groups like the Seventh-day Adventism. It's similar. The foundation is built on on Judaistic law in Seventh-day Adventism. And the list goes on, you see. And all of these groups is that they believe, though, that they have Jesus already. That's quite important. They believe they have Jesus already. So, if you're going to have a conversation with, with a Roman Catholic, prepare to sleep there overnight. I mean, you'll be trying and trying and trying. Same thing with Seventh-day Adventism and other systems. Jehovah's Witness, we know that already. It is a system built on religion, and then what? Jesus added on top. All of these groups, you see, are difficult to share the gospel with. They are completely blind because they think they have Jesus already. That's the danger. But you see, friends, I don't just see the danger out there. I see the danger even in our own church here. Because this danger of Jesus being added on top of our religion is also present among us. We have people in this fellowship who profess faith in Jesus. They speak Christianese. And they even give offerings. They're religious people. On paper, as you look at them, they tick all the boxes. Except one. Full and complete surrender to the Lordship of Christ. They have come up with a religion that said you can, Jesus can save you from sin, but he doesn't have to be Lord. And the reason for that, of course, isn't that they are on a transition from salvation to more lordship. No, they have not received a new heart. Pastorally, telling such people they need to be truly born again is impossible, except by the cross of Christ and the work of the Spirit. It is impossible to convince a person who thinks they are a Christian already because they have already said the sinner's prayer. I mean, what more are you going to tell them to do? They think they have Jesus already because they are Baptists. In their mind, they are already Christians. Perhaps attended church for many years. It is impossible except by the work of the Spirit. So you see, they have old wine skins. And they cannot take the new wine. They cannot hold it. Because they are convinced already the old wine skin which is leaking is just fine. These people are worse, are in a worse situation than a person who has never come into this chapel. At least a new person from outside there would consider Jesus as a new, fresh, exciting option. They can't. This, friends, is a deadly danger of adding Jesus on top of your existing self-made worship of God. It blinds you forever to true salvation. No matter how many sermons you hear from this pulpit, 
if there has never been an original work of conversion, the same grace that melts hearts of unbelievers who have never heard Jesus before, sadly hardens those that have attended church for many years. So I must ask you, all of us here attend church regularly. Is Jesus your number one? That's the first application. You have said this in a prayer. No one is excluded here from this question. You have said this in a prayer. But is Jesus your love? We all speak Christianese very well. You sound like a Christian, but do you have a new heart that grieves for sin? Do you tremble at your sin? If the answer to any of these is no, then simply you look. However you look, you are an old wineskin trying to contain the new wine of Jesus. And it is not working. And it can't work. Your heart is not truly surrendered to Jesus. You are not converted to Christ. Your religion, in the word of William Blake, is a religion of Satan. And that, if that's your situation, is a dangerous situation. It is a dangerous situation because the powerful, almighty God has set his face against you and you now stand condemned to eternal destruction. And unless you surrender to Jesus, you perish in your religion of Satan. So we can't help ourselves at this point to pause and reflect. Ask, we must examine our hearts. Am I truly trusting in Jesus? Or is Jesus really just an add-on? It is never too late to ask yourself such a question. And if the answer is no, you must repent of your rebellion. Ask God to give you a new heart that truly worships him in Jesus. Because we are learning here that true, that is what true worship is, isn't it? It is what true worship is. Truly worshiping Jesus and Jesus alone. Not your good works, not your ideas, but Jesus and Jesus only. And this is our final point, isn't it? First point is worship of God without Jesus is useless. Verse 21. Second point, worship of God by Jesus, by adding Jesus, is foolish. And we might even say dangerous. Well, the final point is that worship of God in Jesus alone, and Jesus only, is the only truth, is the only true way. You see, we see this actually in how Jesus ends the, the parable. Let's look at verse 22 again. Jesus says this, No one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. The wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. New wine is for fresh wineskins. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that, you see, he has not come to be poured into the old wineskin of self-made religion. He has come to be poured into a new wineskin, born of God. And the fresh wine skin Jesus is talking about here is the body of Jesus itself, the, the church. Jesus is saying, look, he has come to establish a new people under a new covenant. If you ever attended any of our Lord's table, you know that verse from Luke 22, verse 20, which says this. Jesus, during the last supper, spoke of a new covenant, didn't he? He said this, and likewise the cup. 
after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is what? A new covenant in my blood. So at this point we're asking, Jesus has come to give us a new covenant, establish a new one. How is it different from the old covenant? Very important. Well, it is different because this new covenant, as Jesus says there, is a new covenant in my blood. It is a covenant that is established by the blood of Jesus, the once for all sacrifice for sin. And there's a better passage to look at this. If you turn with me, I'll read for you this passage from Hebrews 8. Uh, if you can turn to Hebrews 8, verse 6 to verse 13. These are wonderful verses for us to understand what Jesus has done. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6 to verse 13. And I'll read, I'll read this passage for you. The writer of Hebrews has been giving us some words of wisdom. Wonderful truths. And then he says this in verse 6 of chapter 8. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant, the new covenant's immediate is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, that is the old covenant, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And then verse 13 is vitally important. In speaking of the new covenant, he that is God makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What the writer of Hebrews does, writes, is what Jesus himself has said. He's saying, look, the kingdom of God that I'm bringing in is a new covenant. It is a new covenant from God that creates a new church of God made of new wineskins. You've got to get this point, this new wineskin. Because you see, that is what a new follower of Jesus is. A, new follow, a follower of Jesus is a new wineskin. She has received a new birth. God has taken away the old heart and given her a new heart. And this new heart is a new container, a new bottle, so to speak, that now houses the Spirit of God. And all of this is by the precious blood of Jesus. It is whole grace, no works. That's what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. And this truth is crucial for us to understand, friends, because every church has got this one wrong often. The early church got it wrong. 
There were people within the early church who were known as Judaizers. They taught that true worship of God is only possible by believing in Jesus and keeping the laws and traditions of Judaism. And the early church had to deal with this problem. We read about it in Acts 15. And Paul writing to the church in Galatia warns against this problem in Galatians 5, verse 1 to 12. Paul's message to the church at Galatia is simply this. You have in Jesus everything you need. Paul's message to the church in Rome is the same. You have in Jesus everything you need. To the church at Colossae, he makes the same point in Colossians chapter 2 in particular. He says the old law has been done away with, so to speak. Jesus has announced it. Everything you need is now found in Christ alone. But he said, these warnings are given because it is always a danger that everyone faces. So this evening, I really just want to emphasize that point. But you must really get this. You are served by grace and grace alone. As we made that point in the morning, we emphasize it again this evening. Because no church is free from that. No Christian is free from the danger of depending on the law for salvation. Now, this does not mean that Jesus is dismissing the law here. No, on the contrary, the Bible teaches that Jesus has kept the law for us. He has fulfilled every demand of the law on your behalf. That is how he has canceled the law, (laughs) is effect. Jesus has been the perfect Israelite. He's kept every single legal demand on your behalf. And because Jesus has done that, he has freed you from the law and his demands. You no longer have to look to the law to obtain salvation or love from God. Of course, the law remains useful as well, isn't it? It remains useful. How? Because it's now a servant that points us to our constant need of Jesus. As we read the Ten Commandments, we realize that we break them nearly every week. And then we realize we can't go to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments. So what do we do? We run to Jesus, plead for his grace, and thank him for what he's done on the cross. That is how Christians grow. And Jesus is saying to us here that the only true, the only worship of God that that, that God accepts is one that comes in and through him alone, based on the work on the cross. If you are trusting Jesus alone for your salvation, be thankful to God that all you need is in Jesus. How do we thank God in practice, though? This is my, I'm coming to an end now. How do we thank God in practice for what he's done? By resisting the constant temptation to fall back on your good works so that God can be proud of you rather than looking to Jesus. We thank God for the... Friends, this is vital. You, we thank God for the cross by not depending on our works. It's not even by our, our words, so to speak. It's, it's, it's not depending on our work. That's how we thank God for the cross. Because every time you lean on your good works in any way, you are nullifying the cross. The cross should motivate you to do good work, but you should never, dep- you should never depend on the good works. You should always have it in your mind that you are only accepted before God because of what the cross has done for you. And so we thank him by resisting this temptation to to, to constantly depend on our good works. 
And how do we resist this temptation? Well, I just want to leave you with five questions that, that, that I find helpful to ask myself. And I hope you find these questions helpful. Because these five questions will help you ensure that you're resisting uh, that temptation. The first thing you should be asking yourself is this. Try and ask yourself this every week. Am I always thinking more about what I, I must do for God more than what Jesus has done for me? Am I always thinking more about what I must do for God more than what Jesus has done for me? If the answer is yes, then you're not depending on the cross. You're depending on your good works. The second question you might ask yourself is this. Am I prone to impose man-made rules on people around me to help them avoid sin rather than pointing them to the cross of Jesus? Are you more of a legalist than a grace man or a grace lady? Are you trying to change behavior by rules or are you trying to change behavior by pointing them to the finished work of Jesus? That's the second question. The third question is this. Am I looking more at my sin, at, well, am I looking more at the sin in the lives of people around me more than my own sin and how it grieves God? Are you more people-focused about sin than individual-focused about sin? If you are like that, then you are a legalist who thinks you must become better to get to heaven. The fourth question is this. Am I always comparing myself to other people in the church and secretly wishing that people would compare me to others? That's quite an important question. We like being compared. <laughs> we like to hear some compliments, don't we? Even the pastor does. If we are like that, we are legalists. If we are like that, we are trying to get to heaven by our good works. The final question to ask yourself is this. Am I fearful of sharing my deepest struggles with people in the church because it would change how they treat me or look at me? Am I fearful of sharing my deepest struggles with people in the church because it would change how they treat me or look at me? If, it, if, you are, if the answer is yes, if that's what's motivating you, then you are depending on your works rather than the finished work of Christ. Now, as we regularly, we need to grow in these areas. So as we regularly ask ourselves these questions, what it's doing is it's making us repent more before God and it's teaching us to co continually looking at the cross for what Jesus has done for us. Because if there's an answer, there's a yes to all of this, then we are doing more works religion than trusting Jesus. We want to grow both as individuals and as a church to depend more on the cross than our works. And so if we find there is a yes to this question, we must repent. Ask the Lord to help us so that we can look at the cross. May the Lord help all of us to grow uh, in the true worship of God. By, as we let this morning, enjoying being with Jesus and worshiping God by Jesus alone. That is true worship. Amen.